I was having a conversation with Mike Davis. Uh, some of you don't know why he's wearing that green shirt, so you can talk to him afterwards. And he said he received a letter in the mail um, not too long ago from a law firm. It was on official stationery, and this letter said that a distant relative of his, someone he did never met, never heard of, but had passed away and left him over a million dollars. Well, if he had received that via email, like many of us have received such things via email, he'd be highly skeptical. But it came on this official stationery from a law firm here in El Paso. And I asked him, I said, Mike, what are you going to do about it? Because he was a little skeptical. He just found it hard to believe. I said, are you going to just trash that letter? Are you going to follow through with it? Are you going to look into it? And he says to me, he says, you know what? I'm a little skeptical, but I this offer is just really way too good just to throw this letter away. I'm going to look into it. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, you know I make up stories. This is a made-up story. Mike really did not receive this letter of a million dollars. Because if he had, we wouldn't be in a cafeteria. We'd be in our facility now. <laughs> That's the bottom line. I said, Mike, what's the point? The resurrection of Jesus is a bit like that. You know, some people hear about it and go, I'm not too sure. I'm skeptical. This is just like too good to be true. Is it really true? Is it not true? And some of us are here, and we are skeptics. We were born skeptics. We're still skeptical. And if you're a skeptic here this morning, I would invite you to ask hard questions of people who belong to Las Tierras. Ask me. We can dialogue. But this morning, I want to focus on what the resurrection offers Because it really is true. See, if it's true, there's an incredible offer of its blessing to you and to me who trust in Jesus. And the way I want to do this is by looking at this encounter between Jesus and this woman called Mary Magdalene. And what we'll see is that the resurrection offers two things. Hope in sorrow and a corrective to a small view of Jesus. So those two things, hope in sorrow and a corrective to a small view of Jesus. First of all, hope in sorrow. Now, Mary Magdalene, she, along with other women, went to the tomb of Jesus early Sunday morning while it was still dark. She went with these other women with what purpose? To finish, you know, anointing Jesus' body. You know, filling his body in the the linen cloth with perfume and spices. They arrive at the tomb and they find that the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb had been rolled away. The tomb is wide open and she draws the erroneous conclusion that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. Makes sense because it's not there. She panics and she runs and she goes and tells the apostles Peter and John. Peter and John come running to the tomb from their homes to see what happens. They look inside the tomb. They see that the linen cloths are there, placed right where Jesus' body is, was placed earlier. You know, it hasn't been disturbed, but the cloths and the clothes are there. But his body wasn't there. They leave the tomb. Now Mary, 
she ends up back at the tomb and she's all alone. She's looking into the tomb. She sees two angels and obviously it didn't phase her. All right. And one of the angels says, woman, why are you weeping? Well, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. She turns around, apparently outside the tomb, shifting her gaze, and she sees another person whom she thinks is the gardener. And he asks her, we know it's Jesus, but he asks, woman, why are you weeping? It's intriguing to me, this question. Why are you weeping? See, from a certain perspective, it's not a very bright question. Think about it. As somebody told me, and you can ask her, she lives with me, um, just this past week, you never ask a crying woman why she's crying. I don't know if that's true or not, you know, but, you know, sometimes you just don't want to ask that question because you don't know where it's going to take you, all right? But from another perspective, it's obvious why she's crying. It's obvious why she's crying. I mean, she had seen Jesus being brutally crucified just a few days before. She had seen how they placed his body in the tomb. She was denied the opportunity to pay, pay last respects to the body of Jesus. She, she was crying because she feared that grave robbers had done some horrible sacrilege to his body. She wept because she was alone in her grief. She wept because she lost the only man who loved her and understood her. She wept because she's trying to figure out how in the world am I going to face the future without this Jesus she wept because death hurts of course it's obvious so on one hand it doesn't seem that the question is the right question to ask but Jesus isn't stupid and Jesus isn't insensitive The problem isn't that she's weeping. You know, Jesus wept himself when Lazarus died. The problem is there's a certain way of weeping that's not consistent with the reality of the resurrection. Parents, you know this. You hear your children crying in the other room. And sometimes you hear that cry and go, ah, let them cry. And sometimes you hear that cry and you go running because you know there's something wrong. You see, I think Jesus asked the question to bring to her consciousness that the way she is weeping is mistaken. You see, there's a hopeless way even for a Christian to weep. She's weeping. And really, you could say she's wailing. Because see, the, the word that John uses here to describe the translated weeping is a wailing. It's a deep lament. We would say in our parlance she's having a complete meltdown. She's just lost it. See, she is not just discouraged. She's despairing and utterly devastated. She's not just having a bad moment and a bad day. She is crushed. She is inconsolable. She is a complete wreck with this incurable wound that she feels because she thinks she has lost the body of this dead Jesus. She's weeping as one who's hopeless. 
she's weeping as if sin and death has had the last word and that everything that Jesus had said about his rising wasn't true. But, as we know, the irony of it all is that Jesus, the living Jesus, the one who asks the question, is right in front of her. The triumphant Jesus. You see, the fact that Jesus has triumphed over sin and death ought to change the way that we lament. It needs to change the way that we cry and we grieve. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve. It doesn't mean you don't cry. But it ought to change. Why? Because of what he's done to death. What he's done to sin. Let me give it to you this way. About 11 years ago, uh, there was a newspaper article written in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was about uh, a farmer by the name of Daniel Mumburugi. And he was out on his farm tending his potato crops near Mount Kenya when a leopard that was hiding in the tall grass leapt out and attacked him. Now what you need to know about Daniel Muburugu is that he's a 73-year-old man. And he's, he's, he has a machete, all right? And so this leopard, what does it do? Grabs his hands and begins to maul his hands and his wrists. But Daniel has the presence of mind to let go of the machete and he reaches inside the mouth of the leopard. I mean, that's counterintuitive. He puts his hand down the throat of the leopard and he grabs the tongue and he pulls on the tongue and with all the adrenaline and all the might he had, he ripped it out. And as that leopard lay in its death throes, bleeding, one of his friends came afterwards, of course, and finished him off. What I find intriguing about that true story is that he was willing to go into the very center, the very power of this creature. And from within, he destroyed it. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus goes into the very center of sin, of hell, and of death, the very power center of the curse, and he goes in and he rips it out. He has conquered. He has triumphed over sin and death. And that fact has to change the way that we weep and grieve. Because it means that that resurrection means that he has conquered sin's power. Remember what sin has done. Sin has twisted our world. It's brought death into this world. It's broken our relationship with God so we're not reconciled with God naturally. It's ruined our relationship with one another. Sin has ruined us emotionally, mentally. Sin has ruined our bodies. And so we ache and we pain and we feel all sorts of problems and have health issues. But Jesus, by his triumph over sin and death, made a public spectacle of the evil and sin triumphing over them at the cross and by his resurrection. See, Jesus, by asking the question, is not minimizing her pain and her grief. And he doesn't minimize your pain and your grief. But he's saying, if you trust me, don't weep as if I'm still in the grave.
Don't weep as if I'm still dead. If I were dead, oh, weep all you want. And miserably so. You see, with the resurrection, a new age has dawned. A new epoch. You see, he set in motion by triumphing over sin and changing the course of history. He set in motion a reversal of all that is cursed. It's as if he's saying, you know, in this fallen world, we still feel the effects of sin. Yes, it hurts. Yes, there's grief. Yes, there's pain. Yes, it's hard. But it won't always be winter. And some of you hear that and you know my reference. There's this phrase, always winter, but never Christmas. And it comes from a children's story by C.S. Lewis. Some of you have seen the movie or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this, it takes place in, in England, and in this story, these initially three children, Peter, Susan, and Lucy, they go into the land of Narnia, but they go in through a wardrobe, the back of a wardrobe, a closet. Do you remember when they go into Narnia? It's all snow-covered. It's cold. It's frigid. Why is it cold and frigid? Because of the white witch. Because the white witch has put a curse on Narnia, and it's under its spell. And so the phrase, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And at one point in the story, the children hear these sleigh bells, and they think it's the white witch that's coming uh, to patrol with her legions. But it's not the white witch, it's actually Father Christmas. And Father Christmas says to the kids, I have broken through at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but her magic, her evil, is fading. And why? Because Aslan. Aslan is the great lion in this story who is the Christ figure. Aslan, the true king of Narnia, has come in to Narnia and he's on the move. And he comes to defeat the white witch and to overturn the curse. How does he do it? By offering up his life on the stone table where he is sacrificed and by his rising from the dead. And the result of that is that winter becomes, it begins to come to an end. The snow begins to melt. You see, there's a reversal because of the death and the resurrection. You think about your life. There are hard things. And you grieve. You grieve because of your sin. And rightly so. You grieve and you're burdened because you have given in to temptations way too easily. You have, and so have I. You weep because you're overwhelmed by anxiety and worry about loved ones and about the future. You cry because your job sometimes is simply unbearable. Because there are people who criticize you and it hurts deeply. You weep because there are broken marriages. Because there's disease in your body, in the body of your loved ones. You weep because loved ones have passed away. And Jesus tells you and asks you, if you believe in me... Why do you cry the way you do? It won't always be cursed. 
It won't always be harsh. It won't always be winter. Do you see, by the resurrection of Jesus, that which is cursed, he's replacing with blessing. All that is sad will become untrue. The dead will become undead. His death and resurrection means so clearly that yes, you who trust in him are forgiven of all your sin and you are accepted by God. He was raised, the scripture says, for our justification so that he would declare us not guilty. Your best life, my dear friends, is not now. It is yet to come and it is glorious and He is bringing it to pass. He's the one that's making all things new. So yes, you weep and you cry and you grieve and you lament, but you do so with the hope of this resurrection Jesus who lives and reigns. I wish I remembered that every time life is hard. But I don't. A couple of years ago, I was reading a book called Grief Undone, written by the wife of a man, his name is Al Groves, a pastor, taught at a seminary in Philadelphia, and for years he battled with cancer and a whole assortment of other diseases in his body. His days were few, his hours were really numbered, and it was the prayer of the family Uh, Sarah, the wife, I believe is her name, that all the kids, there were three kids, they're all Christians, um, that they would all be there when Al passed away. When the Lord granted that to them, uh, Sarah was there with a friend, and as soon as uh, Al stopped breathing, she called the kids that were up in another room, and they all came running uh, to where Al was. And then she writes, After that last breath, his heart simply stopped, or slowed to a stop, and he was gone. We all broke out into tears and smiles and hugs and started cheering Al on, saying, You're home. You're free. You made it. Run to Jesus. We held each other and we sobbed through our smiles. How in the world does one do that? How do you sorrow? How do you sob? How do you grieve? And yet with hope and with joy and even with a smile. Only because you know that Jesus is undoing the curse in this world and in your life. And the resurrection tells us that so clearly. How do you grieve? Why do you cry the way that you do? That's the glorious offer of the resurrection. But there's another thing that we learn from this encounter. It brings a corrective to our small view of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus speaks to Mary at first? He calls her woman. And why are you weeping? But then he calls her by name, Mary. And instantly she turns around. She recognizes that voice for whatever reason. And what does she do? She clings to Jesus. She just hugs him. I can just imagine her hugging his feet. 
And she says, Rabboni, you know, great, respectful teacher, master. And here's this, this, this portrait of a very intimate and personal encounter between Jesus and Mary. I mean, it just evokes so much passion. And yet Jesus says something that doesn't seem to fit. He says, don't cling to me. Now, at first glance, you know, some of us who are more cynical read this as like, you know, Jesus is saying, I'm really not a huggy sort of guy. Could you just stop hugging me? I've gone through a lot. You know, it's been really tough these last few days. Uh, don't give me a hug. Is Jesus just kind of stiff-arming her? Just get, get away. I'm not a huggy in a huggy mood. No, that's not what he's doing. He tells her, don't cling to me. Because he understands that her grasping him the way that she is represents this, her mistaken notion of the relationship that they have. She loves him deeply. She has a profound devotion to Jesus, but, hear this, she has a low estimate of Jesus. She has an inadequate view of Jesus. Do you know that you can love Jesus profoundly and yet not view Jesus rightly? That's all of us, right? You see, he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's almost as if he's saying, you think, Mary, that just because I died and am now risen, that that is all I came to do? You know, as if Mary can say, well, yes, Jesus, you died, you took on the sins of your people, and now you're raised. Good, let's resume our relationship as before. You know, you stay with me. There's nothing else for you to do. Right? And some of us, some of us have a view of Jesus that on one hand is right. I believe in Jesus who died for my sins. And I hope you do. And I hope that you know that because he's died for your sins, your sins are forgiven, forever gone. There's no condemnation for you if you trust Jesus. But if that's all you know of Jesus, your view is too little. It's inadequate. No, he says, Mary, you need to relate to me. Not as simply as if I were a man who loves you, but I am the ascending Lord. I am the ascending Lord. I was raised from the dead, not simply to hang out with you, you know, for many years to come. No. And I imagine this, obviously it's not in the text, but I can imagine Jesus saying something like this, Mary, you were there when I was crucified. Do you remember what I said from the cross? I did not say, I am finished. I said, it is finished. Mary, I paid for all the sin. The debt that you owed, it is completely paid. No one else has to pay it. You don't have to pay it. I paid it for you. But that doesn't mean that my work is complete. I am ascending. I will be exalted. And I will continue my work and apply it by my Spirit from this exalted position at the right hand of God. You see, when he says he's ascending, packed in that word, the ascension, is 
Jesus rising. He's going to rise from the grave, but he's also going to rise up to heaven and to glory. And he's going to be seated at the right hand of God. And all that means is he's in the position of power and authority. He's going to exercise his power and authority over his church, over the universe. You see, but I need to say this. He's going to be exalted as king, as Lord. But he's always been Lord. He's always been the king. He was the Lord when he was in the manger. He was Lord when he was on the cross. He was Lord when he was in the tomb. He's always Lord. But the big difference now is that this God-man, this one who was crucified, he's going to be exalted, what? With his glorified body. Now the God-man, bearing a body like ours, still wounded before the throne of God. Exercising all authority and all power, and every name will recognize that name above all names. And some joyfully, and some with misery. And as exalted Lord, we know the rest of the scriptures that teaches us that He will receive from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He will pour out His Holy Spirit, and He will indwell. Us. You see, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And so you can see where if Mary just had the ears to hear, and later on, I'm sure, you know, he had a conversation with her. He says, look, I will, I will indwell you by my Spirit that I will send. I will never leave you, Mary. I'll never forsake you. I'll be closer to you than you could ever imagine. I will indwell you. And you need that, Mary, because you're going to be facing sin that remains. You're going to be facing enemies. You're going to be facing all kinds of challenges. And you're going to need me, the reigning Lord, to protect you, to defend you, to provide for you all through life. And brothers and sisters and dear friends, we need not simply the Jesus that died, but we need the Jesus that rose and is exalted and is applying by His Spirit all His work to our lives because we continue to struggle and we need His Holy Spirit to take that gospel and press it into our souls. And that's what He does. And some of us, though, we have a little view of the God-man. So, tell me about your view of Jesus. Is it a diminished view? I've heard people say, well, you know, my Jesus is just a little better than me. Well, a whole lot better than me. But he's like a better version of me. And my best day. So, just think of your best moment, right? That best nanosecond of your life. It was really good. And then extrapolate it by a million, and you go, that's, that's my Jesus. And if that's it, I feel sorry for you, because as an idol, it'll never save you. You can't save yourself, no matter how good you think you are. Other people, you know, their view of Jesus is, well, you know, he's just the missing piece in my life. I got this, I got a good job, I got a good family, you know. I got good neighbors. I got good health. Now I just need kind of this Jesus piece to just fit in there and everything will be fine. Uh, Sorry, he's not a piece. He is the exalted Lord. He is the source. He is the sustainer. He is the point of all that exists. He is the apex. He is the culmination. He is life and he is breath. 
He is all in all. He is the risen and exalted Lord. And you know what he asks and commands us to do? To follow him. He says, I am the Lord, you follow me. And some of us just don't like people giving us commands. Right? This is not, you know what? Let, if it comes out of my heart, si me nace del corazón, you know, I'm okay with that. But I just don't like it. But, but think about this for a moment. If the one who's calling you to follow him, to submit to him, to obey him, if he laid down his life for you so that you might be completely forgiven of your sin, if he has reconciled you to God so that you are declared not guilty but loved by God and accepted, if he has given you an inheritance that won't perish, spoil, or fade ever, if he has made all these promises to do you good and to bless you, why do you struggle to say, yes, I'll follow you? You see, that leads us into the last thing. Is He's so gracious. He is the exalted Lord, but He's also the gracious Savior. Think about this. In His conversation with Mary, why didn't He just say, It's me, Jesus. Why, why didn't He just say, It's me, Jesus. You notice, He never speaks His name. The name that He speaks is Mary's name. It's almost as if she's in a dark room. There's, there's all this stuff around her, the empty tomb, there's Jesus, there's the angels, and she can't see any of it because of the darkness that surrounds her. And then out of that darkness, she hears this voice, and it just penetrates the darkness of her soul, and it just breaks through as if the lights come on, and all of a sudden she understands, I know that voice. That's the voice of the one who pursued me. That's the voice of the one who went after me when I was enslaved in my sin. That's the voice that came and rescued me in my brokenness. Oh, that's the voice of one who knows me personally. To be personally known by Jesus. You know why that matters? You have to think about who Mary Magdalene is. If you go back to Luke chapter 7, and you can read it, Luke 7 and Luke 8, there's a situation, there's an episode there in which there's a sinful woman who goes to Simon's house, they're eating, Jesus is there, she falls at Jesus' feet and she cries, and then she wipes her tears, or his feet with her hair, and some people think that was Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. We don't know. But you know what we do know? Next chapter... We know that she was a woman who was possessed by seven evil spirits. I don't know how many of you have ever been possessed by a demon. I hope none of you. Years ago, many years ago, I was at a youth retreat. I was helping uh, some people with this retreat. We had our events on Friday night. It was all over. And there was a group of about seven or eight high school students. And we couldn't find them, and I was looking for them in the facility. I went to the chapel. The doors were locked, or, not, or closed, rather. And I opened the doors, and I saw the group of kids there. But here's what you need to know. I freaked out. And the reason that I freaked out is every hair on my body stood on end because I felt the presence of evil like I'd never known it before. And why? Because these teenagers were having a seance, and they were invoking evil spirits. 
I felt such fear and such trepidation in that moment. And I wonder how in the world did Mary Magdalene live with seven evil spirits in her life? You cannot forget that about Mary who clings to Jesus. Now you understand why she's weeping like she does and why she clings to Him. Because she wasn't looking for God. She wasn't looking for Jesus. She couldn't look for Jesus. She wasn't able to look for Jesus. It never dawned on her. Oh, but what wonderful grace. What wonderful love and mercy that the Savior doesn't wait for us to look for Him because we never could. He doesn't wait for you to clean up your life and make your life more moral so that God accepts you. No, this risen Savior pursues sinners like you who are grieving, who are lost, who are overpowered by sin and have no hope but in Christ. Jesus sought her and cast out the demons. And Jesus seeks sinners today. This Easter, will you, by the grace of God, ask Him to open your eyes, give you ears to hear His voice, and to free you from your sin, to free you from your inconsolable grieving and they fill you with hope and life and love and mercy and my dear friends this is no scam this is the real good offer of the gospel let's pray Lord, we thank you that this is not fictitious. And we see it because of the lives that have been changed. Mary's life and our lives. But perhaps there are some here whose lives are still gripped and enslaved by sin. And we ask, Lord, that in your great mercy you pursue such a person and bring them to freedom that they might know and taste of your great love and your mercy in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.